he felt a strong need to unify the Church of the Great God. Uh, if the ripple effect then were to reach others, that's well and good and fine, but we have to start at home and see where it goes from there. I thought about that quite a little. I had something else in mind to speak on, but I, since that theme has been established, I wanted to uh, take some time to analyze what we need to do to help produce unity among ourselves. And once I got into it and began thinking about it, <laughs> there's so much that needs to be done that I realize I cannot even begin to cover it in one sermon, so I want to introduce it and perhaps show up and go back over some information from a little different angle that we've covered before and thought about, and yet there's a great deal in the Bible about our present plight and condition. Uh, no matter where you happen to turn, it just is in there because the whole Bible is written for and about the end time, where we find ourselves, and no matter where you go, God directs that, whether it's uh, in Deuteronomy about the blessings and the cursings, or whether you go into the prophets themselves or into the New Testament, uh, it's all slanted, as we shall see, toward those of us who would be living at this end time. Some of you went to the movies, I'm sure, uh, during World War II, and before the movie would start, they would have clips about the war, and uh, you would see a one-sided showing of that war, certainly. Uh, you would see bombers flying over Berlin at night, the reporter right there in the uh, bomber itself, and he would be taking pictures out the window of the bombs falling and the blasts in Berlin. And the uh, commentator would come on and something about, Allies bomb Berlin! And we'd get all excited because of the fervor that was stirred up by that. And uh, I don't know how long those lasted. It's been a long time now, but it seems like they went on five or ten minutes or more uh, about the war effort, what was going on, and how the United States and the Allies were whipping up on our enemies. Uh, you'd see how many times did they replay the Iron Cross being blown off the Bundestag in, in Berlin once the Allies reached there, uh, the Japanese Zero uh, coming into Pearl Harbor and bombing Pearl Harbor, so we had to have clips of that to get the American people stirred up so that we could go to war against Japan. And then after that, when we did, were making war, you'd go and see those film clips, and here were Japanese zeros falling from the skies, kamikaze pilots being blown out of the air just before they hit uh, the battleships, and so on and so forth. And then perhaps uh, they even had photography uh, and clips of the A-bombs hitting Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. I've seen those. It went on and on and on. The, uh, the destruction of our enemies. And now since that time, they have, well, I don't know what it was since that time when they actually started this. Maybe it was way back. But you have the veterans of foreign wars. And the veterans of foreign wars have these halls all across the land where the veterans of the foreign wars all get together uh, as they so choose and they drink beer and whiskey and swap war stories. And they compare stumps of arms and legs and tell those same stories over and over and over about the 101st Airborne or the 88th Cavalry or whatever it was they were in. And uh, it just goes on and on. And every so often we have another war. And then we have more veterans to come in with different stops and different stories. So they perpetuate this thing through some more years of telling their war stories. 
Uh, we had a magazine called In Transition, which no longer exists. And there were a lot of war, star war stories that were printed in that magazine. You could pick it up, and there were stories about uh, divisions and splits here and something going on there. And somebody just handled, handed me uh, last night a, a sister of In Transition called The Journal. And I began reading through it, and it's a very frustrating, uh, confusing uh, bundle of various evil and foul and horrible reports coming in from all over the world. Uh, there was an article there about a united congregation down in Australia that uh, split off and started their own group. There was another article about uh, Church of uh, uh, Worldwide Church of God in Ohio that uh, split off from worldwide, completely voted to go and uh, join the Disciples of Christ. Another uh, worldwide group, maybe it was the same one in the same article, I don't remember, but there are a lot of these articles. And in this particular case, the congregation voted to meet on Sunday now because it was hard for the mothers to get their kids to the doctor and the dentist on any time but Saturday. So that was the main reason I had presumed from the article that they decided they'd meet on Sunday now, since the doctors and the dentists are closed down anyhow. And uh, there are no fresh troops, brethren. We have to realize that. We, we don't have another war and then another war and another war. This is the same old troops over and over. We were, what, at 150,000 more or less? And now the number is winnowing down as the dead and dying fall. Uh, so the number gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's a very frustrating situation for us to watch. But in this picture coming into my mind about those war clips and about the veterans of foreign wars getting together and telling their stories, it made me wonder if maybe Satan's demons meet once in a while and they have these stories to tell. Boy, you should have seen the number I did on that group in Kansas. And uh, maybe another one says... Look at that church in West Virginia. I just split that thing in 16 different pieces. Uh, total carnage. And, and maybe they don't have to have the screen, I guess, but maybe they have the ability and the imagery uh, to explain to one another just what it is they've been doing. Because remember, God even asked Satan, where have you been? Well, I've been wandering to and fro about the earth, and he's the accuser of the brethren. So he even has his war stories he takes before God the Father and Jesus Christ. Look what I did to Joe. Or look what I did over here in Australia or South Africa or somewhere. Well, maybe they don't do that, but I can just imagine in my mind that kind of thing going on. Uh, just as we have our own war stories. And sometimes those veterans of foreign wars sink into that so deeply that their lives basically end there. And I saw a fellow on the uh, plane yesterday who had a cap on, says, Vietnam veteran. Uh, that's his badge to show the world. He wears it in a certain type of haircut, and everything seems to sort of go with the image. But then there, it seems like people's lives just sort of end there. We can't do that. We've been through the wars, too, and it's natural, I suppose, for us to tell a few of our war stories, and we rehearse how we came out, but that isn't good enough. God expects more of us than that. He expects us to pick up and move forward. And he is going to keep the pressure on until we do that. In Joel 2 and verse 12, we read on Pentecost, 
Now let me get over to the right book here. Joel 2 and verse 12, one of the main areas here. Therefore also now, says the Eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. I had two or three people ask me. That was a very emotional time that, that Pentecost uh, with the combination of my sermon in the morning and John's in the afternoon, particularly there in Greenville where we were all together uh, and it was live. And it seemed to fit right in with the scripture that this is now, this is us. We can see ourselves there in Joel 1 very well and what has happened to the church. And then God says, sanctify a fast. So it seemed to fit right in with the scripture. And yet then people were saying, well, do you expect anything really dramatic, maybe miracles from God at this point since we fasted? Well, I think that's a fair question. And my answer to that is not necessarily. The onus is not necessarily on God to suddenly begin to bless us. The whole onus is on us to rend our hearts, not our garments, to begin to turn things around and to seek God with all our hearts. Then we may begin to see some of these things happen, as he says in chapter 2. It's encouraging. We just sang Psalm 77 here before the service, and it talked about, uh, does it seem like God has just completely forgotten us, or words to that effect? And then at the end, it, it begins to show that, did he not deliver Israel from Egypt? Did he not finally get them to the promised land, rehearsing how great our God is, and the thunder and the lightning? And these things are going to happen. God is going to see to it that we come through this. But the way that he is doing this is through great pressure on us. And it takes time for human beings to change. I think we have learned that in our Christian lives in God's church. Most of us have been baptized for a long time, but not fully converted. Converted means changed. And though we may be converted, we are not completely changed yet. He told the Romans not to be conformed, the Roman Christians, not to be conformed to the world, but transformed. And a transformation has to occur in our attitudes and our approaches. And that does take time. So, no, we don't suddenly have instant pudding here just because we fast one day. But it can be a good start. It can be a recognition of where we need to go. And that's why I wanted to get into the series here on what we can do to produce unity. And I will cover several different aspects of that because there are several areas that we are disunified in in specific. So do we expect miracles in God? Well, yes, ultimately he promises that. But he expects change in us first. And that is what we need to concentrate on now because that's what he said. Rend your hearts, not your garments, and turn to me with all your heart. Let's pick it up uh, back in Lamentations here. Uh, chapter 3 of Lamentations and verse 39. Wherefore does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why should we complain when we receive punishment? We should expect it, actually. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. So here is the, the first instruction, really, is search and try our ways. And we obviously are going to find ourselves short, so we turn to God. 
Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. This is very similar to Hebrews 12, where God says he chastens every son whom he loves, and that is his way of showing love to us, because it changes our attitudes, it changes our approach, and that is his love at work. We have transgressed and have rebelled. You have not pardoned. He says that you can fall from grace. I think it's in Galatians 5.4, somewhere right in that neighborhood. We can fall from grace. Our sins have not been pardoned. You have covered us with anger and persecuted us. You have slain and have not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Someone commented the other day that it, they were just talking about it. it doesn't It seems like my prayers go no higher than the ceiling. I can pray and pray, and yet no job or no healing or no this or no that. Well, God tells us right here very plainly that our prayers are not coming through. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think that he has turned completely away, because certainly we do get some answers, and, uh, and God is very concerned for us. But as a general rule, he has turned his face away from the church of God. And to whatever degree, perhaps we as individuals are repenting, and a lot of us then begin to repent, maybe God will turn his face more and more back to us, and our prayers will receive greater answers. That's the whole desire and direction here of Lamentations. Why all this destruction, brethren? Why is the church going through what it's going through? Let's go back to Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15. I want to be sure that we recognize that there is a problem. You know, we can be in denial, and it amazes me sometimes that I talk to people here and there across the country, not necessarily in our group, but just a, an awareness comments you hear and things you pe see people doing that they just simply don't recognize what God is doing. They still don't get it that God is blowing the church apart, as John has shown very clearly through the Bible study on the book of Lamentations as he's gone around the country. And it's not just one or two chapters of one or two books. It's book after book after book in the prophecies that so clearly lay that out. And we'll see a little bit more of it now. But Proverbs 15, verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. Now, were we proud? Were we sitting in Worldwide years ago saying, we're the only church of God. We're the only place where God is working on the face of this earth. This is God's church. Was that necessarily a wrong statement? Maybe not, in terms of where he was working in a great way. There are other sheep and other foals, he said, and we don't know exactly what that means and what God has out there, but we found little groups in South America and in the Ukraine and various places apart from us who were basically keeping, uh, as far as they knew, the laws of God and the, the feast, the holy days, uh, the Sabbath, to whatever degree they were, and maybe God was working there, but that, this was the only place where he, he had a worldwide work going that we can see. The problem wasn't that we were the church, the problem is we were proud of it. And God says he will destroy the house of the proud. We became spiritually proud. 
We were the apple of God's eye, we read back in Zechariah 2 and various other places. But a recognition that we are God's people is not enough. The recognition that Israel was the people of God when they came out of Egypt was not enough. There were attitudes they had that were wrong that had to be changed before God could begin to bless them and give them the promised land. And some of those people really resisted. They just couldn't get the picture of what God was doing. They murmured, they complained, they could not see that God was going to deliver them. But it was their own sins, their own murmuring, their own complaining that held them back for 40 years. Had they been so thankful and remained thankful and obedient, they would have stayed in God's good graces and he would have taken them right through to the promised land. But as it was, every male except Joshua and Caleb had to die. And it was their children that went in. What an indictment. And spiritually speaking, we see a lot of people out there dead and dying right now with bleeding stumps. And we're in danger of becoming some of them if we don't get rid of the pride because God says, I will destroy the house of the proud. There's no equivocation there. What about Revelation 3? where he says, I will spew you out of my mouth if you become Laodicea. What is lukewarmness? Indifference. Oh, hum. Eh, eh, okay. We're in God's church. The temple, the temple, as John said. We're in God's church and everything's okay. And We'll just go to a place of safety and get a little final uh, polishing up there and we'll be right in the kingdom of God and ruin the world under Christ. Pretty simple, huh? <laughs> doesn't work that way because we were not only spiritually proud we were lukewarm and lackadaisical and we honestly can't say we were really striving and working to overcome can we I can't I was asleep I kind of rouse a little now and then and try to do something but I can't say I was on fire. I was just there. I think a lot of us could echo that, and we're sorry about it, but we have to begin to do something. We're here in the Matzah's home in Gladewater today, and I see they not only have a plan, but they are executing the plan of remodeling their house. Now you can sit in the house in your chair with the rain dripping on your head as the book of Proverbs says and for lack of diligence for slackness the roof falls in and you can sit there until it falls in on your head if you want to that's what happened in world life so I don't need to really get up and do something and when the, when the roof fell in we were all amazed and we began to try to crawl out of the house and figure out what to do next so it isn't enough to recognize that the roof just fell in either. You have to do something. So I see their bathroom is torn up. Doing a remodel job in there. You recognize there's a need. Then you make a plan. And then you execute the plan. And that's where I want to go with this series is to show, first of all, that there is a problem. 
seek to define that problem in several categories and then form a plan based on Scripture whereby we might begin to do what God has asked us to do and to help build that unity in the church. John has said that is a goal that he has to unify it and I want to do all I can to help do just that. Let's go to Jeremiah 14. I don't want to get away from this thought too quickly here, just to uh, review a little bit where we are and see it in a few other scriptures that we haven't uh, perhaps examined quite as closely before. We talked about and have over the last couple of years the famine of the word that Amos talks about. Not, not a famine of bread in the land, but a famine of the word. And in that same light, let's look at Jeremiah 14. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the dearth, or the famine in the land. Judah mourns, and the gates thereof languish. Drive out to the big sandy campus, and it is a ghost town now. You drive to Pasadena and to look at the campus there, it's a ghost town. Some people, I guess, enjoy going to ghost towns. There are places all over the country, uh, in the West particularly, where there was a mining strike or whatever, and it died, and everybody left, and it became a ghost town. And people go there and wonder what really happened here, uh, what went on, why did it boom, why did it bust. And we can look at these ghost, two ghost towns at least, and you can go to Brickett Wood and other places if you want. <laughs> you can find lots of ghost towns now where the Worldwide Church of God used to be. They call them ghost towns. Maybe they're demon towns. God just turned Satan loose, as he did on Job. And we have seen a great destruction. So the gates thereof languish. They are black to the ground. The cry of Jerusalem is gone up. The nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the pits and found no water. So the leaders sent people out to try to find water. The Spirit of God is not there, or at least not in any great quantity. It doesn't say there's a complete, total lack, but a famine. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. And have we not done that? It's just so obvious that this is a very shaming thing in the annals of God's church. Because the ground is chapped, for there was no rain in the earth. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Those of us who were working in the work and how big it was, and how widespread it was. And we had a man traveling all over the earth talking to kings and presidents. That is no more. It's gone. And our house is made desolate, as God said. The hind leg calved in the field and forsook it because there was no grass. No grass in verse 6 as well. 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do you it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. So we've got to recognize that we do have a problem, and that the problem is our problem, not God's problems. He does not answer us in, his, in our prayers because he is derelict. He does not answer those prayers because we have sinned and not repented. And maybe we say, well, we have repented. Well, if we have... And we've repented to the degree which God expects us to repent. Then why are we not being put back together and united? The obvious answer is we've not repented sufficiently yet. And I don't want to beat a horse to death here. 
And people might say, well, you know, Daryl, it's time you said this. Get off it. The brethren of God. I don't know that it has been said enough yet. Because obviously, God has not yet completely turned back to us and we're not seeing the blessings beginning to flow yet. But we're still being chastened. And the war stories do continue. It's not just that God blew it apart and quit, but the divisions of the divisions are still splitting. And groups are still spinning off worldwide and going into disciples of Christ or other evangelicals or when the whole whole thing went evangelical now. But even then, there are still groups spinning off of that where whole congregations are leaving. And people are leaving United. And people are leaving Global. And people are leaving Philadelphia. And people are leaving Church of the Great God. And people are leaving everywhere. Division is the natural order of things in the world. Unity is desirable, but it does not come naturally. It has to be made. Certain steps have to be followed in order to unify. Verse 9, Why should you be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Leave us not. See, there's a plea. There's a cry. Are we like the publican who bowed his head and would not so much as lift it to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner? And I think most of us would feel that we are in that category at this point. We don't feel that we are righteous and super Christians, do we? I don't think so. And yet perhaps there is still a certain amount of pride in us that keeps us from being reunited with each other because we have our own ways. Leave us not, O God. Thus says the Lord to this people, verse 10, Thus have they loved to wander, float from group to group, wander about, wander from doctrine to doctrine, a lot of different ways they wander. They have not refrained their feet. They've not anchored them somewhere and really gotten down to go going to work. They keep perhaps looking for smooth and wonderful things and things that they can agree with totally and completely. And I'll tell you something. You are not going to find a group anywhere on the face of this earth with which you can agree totally and completely about everything. It is not going to happen. Then said the Lord to me, Pray not for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. And we did used to fast some and worldwide, but it didn't seem like anything really happened. And God did then begin to send the sword and the famine and the pestilence, and they begin to fall. A thousand on our left and ten thousand on our right. People falling like flies spiritually all about us, and yet some are not even aware of that. They think, well, you know, we're just going on, business as usual, and completely unaware. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, neither shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. <laughs> see, there's part of the problem. 
the ministry was telling them, we're going a new way. This is a good way. We're going to go under the grace of God and everything will be just hunky-dory. You wait and see. But it hasn't happened that way. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke to them. They prophesy to you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and the deceit of their hearts. What is that every fit? What is happening in Worldwide Church of God and that you and I have witnessed and lived through? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and, and I sent them not, yet they say, Sword and famine shall not be in this land. We have the new word of God, which is just old recycled paganism, nothing new about it whatsoever. By sword and by famine shall those prophets be consumed, and one after another, in bunches of twos and threes and tens and twenties, their food has been cut off. Their paychecks have been cut off. They've been turned out. And the organization continues to fall apart. When God turned Satan loose on them and said, I will destroy and let the false teachers, the false ministers in, they did their job. And they're still doing it. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine. And then we wander about, and haven't we been, seeking truth, seeking to be fed. And I have heard so many, many, many dozens of people claim, I'm not being fed, I'm not being fed. Well, here it is, prophesied long ago in Jeremiah. And they shall have none to bury them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. We can't seem to console or help or do anything for our relatives. I personally have relatives in United and in Global and in Stay at Home and in Church of the Great God, and uh, I can't think of where all right now. <laughs> and some who have just completely left God entirely. And it's sad. Your families look somewhat like mine, I'm sure. Therefore you shall say this word to them, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach, with a very grievous blow. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with a sword. If I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Yes, both the prophet and the priest go about into a land that they know not. We're wandering in a land that we don't know how to traverse. We don't know where to go. There is great confusion. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you smitten us and there is no healing for us? We look for peace and there is no good. And for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. Don't we look for the healing? Don't we wish that God would put us back together? I hear that complaint everywhere I go from every part of the church that I talk to people in. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your namesake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, break not your covenant with us. Ancient Israel had to be disgraced, didn't they? Wandering in the desert. Their bodies falling by the thousands. This is nothing new. We're just repeating the cycle. How many times over the years when I was growing up in God's church did Passover come around and we would hear sermon year after year after year about not murmuring, not complaining, about all the things the Israelites did and how if we would not do that, well, we could avoid that. 
years we heard that. And now it's come upon us. And we pray to God, don't abhor us. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Can these people, the heathen, who brought in false doctrine, bring rain? No. Are not you he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait upon you, for you have made all these things. So we turn to the sovereignty of God for his answers. Then God says, verse 1 of chapter 15, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, Yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them get out of here. And boy, did he do that to us. Then he talks about famine and sword again. Verse 5, For who shall have pity upon you, O Jerusalem? For who shall bemoan you? Paul ties Jerusalem directly to the church in Galatians 4 and 6 and in Hebrews 12, and on and on it goes. This is talking to the church today. Verse 6, Therefore will I stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary with relenting, and I will fan them with a fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people, since they return not from their ways. Verse 9, She that has borne seven languishes. Does that remind you of Revelation 2 and 3? Seven church eras. She has given up the ghost. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded. We're not into the day of the Lord yet, the day of darkness and clouds and gloominess, physically speaking. The sun's still shining on physical Israel as a whole, but the church has been destroyed while the sun was still up. And the residue of them, verse 9, will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Eternal. Then he changes it a bit. Verse 11, the Lord said, Verily it shall be well with your remnant. Whatever's left of the church that does truly repent, God is going to begin to bless. I'd like to be encouraging and say that time has arrived and everything's going to be just fine from now on, but I don't think we've reached there yet. That's why we keep hearing reports that things are getting worse. Verse 18. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you be altogether to me as a liar and as waters that fail? That's our complaint. We're fearful, it seems, that this isn't going to get turned around. But it is going to. And there are dozens and dozens of chapters in the Bible that say so, but we don't have time for that today. Now let's go to Hosea 4. Hosea 4. Hear you the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. And when we're speaking of the land here, let's refer to the church. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. And we hurt each other. We hurt relationships. Different groups talk down about other groups. Well, we've all been guilty of it to one degree or another. Times, moments of weakness, easy to look down on someone else. Therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish. Verse 4, let no man strive nor reprove another, for your people are as they that strive with the priest. <coughs> It doesn't do any good to start condemning one another. 
But the ministry is supposed to cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins. But people don't like to listen to the ministry anymore because they can read Jeremiah 23 and they can read Ezekiel 34 and they can see that the ministry has misused and abused them and they don't want any more of that. <clears throat> but does that mean that the ministry is worthless entirely and that we don't need it anymore? We'll get into some more of that a little later on and what, what our attitudes can be and should be. <laughs> Therefore you shall fall in the day and the prophet also shall fall with you in the night and I will destroy your mother. Jerusalem, the mother of us all, is all said there in Galatians 4. And is our mother not destroyed? Mr. Armstrong often referred to himself as our father in that sense, in that we came into the church through him. I don't think he meant it in a rabbinical or priesthood way. Uh, God says don't do that, but uh, even Paul referred to himself as the father of those people. So that's okay in that context but the church is Jerusalem the mother of us all from above that God gave us in Acts 2 but now God says he's destroying our mother and look around my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge we've read that in times past and years past and thought well Israel's going to be destroyed because they don't know God but we as a church came to the point we didn't really know God we didn't know what God's focus was or what God was doing and I think we've seen through a lot of these scriptures where God's focus is right now it's on getting us to repent not do any great work because you have rejected knowledge God gave us knowledge through Herbert Armstrong knowledge that has now been rejected I will also reject you that you shall be no priest to me seeing you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Well, this anger of God has come upon us, and uh, we're still suffering. It's not over yet. He does say that his anger will endure but for but a moment in Psalm 30. Now, a moment to God can be quite some period of time for you and me, because a thousand years to him is as a day. And uh, with us, uh, a few moments of pain uh, seem pretty long. <laughs> so let's understand the difference between God and us and yet he says he will not put more on us than we can absolutely stand without making a way that we can escape and overcome so uh, even with us it will not be as long as we might fear uh, it will turn around but it how soon it does to a great degree is contingent upon how soon we turn to God with our whole heart he has an appointed time and he is going to stick to his schedule I'm not saying we're going to change when the tribulation comes. I'm saying we might change whether we are in it or not by whether or not we repent in time. Otherwise, we're going to go into the physical tribulation and the pressure will get greater than it is right now. Verse 9, There shall be like people like priests. Boy, do we hear that today. I'm just as good as you are. All the people are holy. Your opinion is no better than mine. And maybe my opinion is not any better than anyone else's. But preaching the scriptures of God still needs to be done. And there still has to be some form. Otherwise, we just go into a formless blob. And that's what happen is happening. Many, many people are just leaving organizations completely and slowly going back, or quickly going back into the world. 
I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. And part of verse 9 is what he's saying here is, it doesn't matter whether you are a sheep or a shepherd, you're still going to get your just dues. You'll reap what you sow. For they shall eat and not have enough. Priest and, 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 uh, and sheep. You shall commit whoredom and shall not increase. Pouring after other religions, after paganism, because they have left off to take heed to the eternal. It goes on and on. Verse 14. Uh, shall I not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom, nor your spouses when they commit adultery? See, this takes it beyond our mother. This takes it to the daughters of Zion. Zion was the church, and the daughters of Zion are the pieces that broke off. And God says this is going to continue. The daughters, too, will be punished. Are your spouses, when they commit adultery, we're beginning to, a little at a time, in this group, that group, wherever, lose a little of the truth and go off after something else. They're separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore, the people that does not understand shall fall. But we have to make sure that we understand what is going on here and don't fall. Let's, uh, let's wrap this particular part up here pretty quickly now. I want to hit Daniel 12 and verse 7 while we're close. Because Daniel 12 is talking about the very end of the age, just before Christ returns. And even gives the 1,335 days right after this. And he swore by him, picking up the, the middle of verse 7, that lives forever, that it shall be for a time and times and a half. So when this finally gets down to the, the, the last part, three and a half years, and when he shall have, have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. The New King James Verse says, shatter the power of the holy people. And all these things shall be finished. Are we getting close or what? Now the shattering has been going on since perhaps the 70s particularly since 86, it's been accelerating, and we see it happening now. Somebody in one group says, well, I see in the Bible no reason to tithe, so a whole congregation will leave. Or another one says, well, I see no reason to do this, or I see a reason to keep this calendar this way. So a whole group leaves over that. And it only takes one thing that they get all excited about, and they're gone. It hasn't slowed down. It's getting worse, no matter which group it is. But God said, I will shatter the power of the holy people. Can anyone do a great work now? No, we've been shattered into pieces. And even in areas where they seem to be really trying, and I mean sincerely, I'm not putting anyone down, people are really trying to go ahead and do a great work not happening. There isn't enough power. There isn't enough strength. There isn't enough backing from God. Because he's going the other direction with this to invoke repentance. Or how can we, who have been so lackadaisical, set such a high standard and example before the world? We're laughing stock. Those around Gladewater have a greater awareness of that than some of you who are in Chicago or who are in Florida or in Washington or somewhere. Because here the people of Gladewater and Big Sandy and Longview and Tyler have seen a once fine institution 
going to rack and ruin and burn down in front of their eyes and hit the ground. And it's an embarrassment. Where is their God? They laugh. We read that in Joel on Pentecost. How's my time? Wow. Um, I'll skip Amos 9, verse 8, jot it down, read it if you want. I want to touch briefly on Matthew 24, verse 2, because we've quoted this several times and never really maybe took the time to explain why this is now. But the disciples came to Christ and showed him the building and uh, to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, See all these things? There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And the disciples said, When? What is the context? Cataclysmic, end-of-the-age events, Christ went on to explain. He wasn't talking about that physical temple except only incidentally because this was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 A.D. that Christ uttered these words to them before the church was begun, before he died. And it wasn't but plus or minus 40 years till that physical temple was torn down and gone. Did these cataclysmic things happen that Christ was talking about? Absolutely not. So he was referring to the end time. What is the temple today? You are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. The church of God is the temple. That's Paul said that over and over and over. Christ is saying here, the temple is going to be destroyed. And we've already seen that in Hosea and various other scriptures today. So where will all this end? I don't know how far it's going to go. What does it mean when it says not one stone left on top of another? Is this governmental organizational structure? Or does it mean brethren are just scattered until they're spread so far out that uh, you can't stack two together? All right. We have to admit we have a problem. I think that should be clear by now. We can't deny that. We are a dysfunctional family. How do you solve dysfunction? Now, what do I mean? When, when we say rend our hearts and not our garments, where are the areas that need repair? Well, doctrinally, we're in a shambles. I mean, as a greater church of God, you get a hundred people in a room, they all got different opinions about something, it seems. Each group has a different opinion about this, and then the stay-at-homers, all, you know, one or two or three have uh, their idea about something, and either of the three or four or five that might be sitting in that one home, they all have different opinions about something. And it reminds me of the time of the judges, where every man leans to his own understanding. So doctrinally, we're dysfunctional. We don't all agree. We're not unified in everything we believe. There's an area that needs work. Brother to brother, we have troubles getting along, offending one another, condemning one another, putting one another down, not allowing for their weakness, their difficulties, their problems. Sure, they're there. We all have problems. But are we supporting the weak? Are we helping and showing mercy? Or do we have problems brother to brother. The ministry is one of the biggest areas now. As I said before, uh, Christ condemns the way the ministry is acted in Ezekiel 34, and people are using abuses for excuses. 
We've been abused, and therefore that's our excuse not to look to the ministry whatsoever. Is that valid? It's a problem. The respect between the ministry or the sheep and the shepherds is very, very poor right now. That's one of the biggest problems we've got. How can we turn it around? What can we do about that, brethren? We'll cover that. I don't want to get into the details today, but there are ways to heal these problems. What about the daughters of Zion, sister to sister, splinter to splinter, fighting and warring between themselves here and there? Cat's bad. What about our personal lives? Does God seem to hear an answer? We covered that. Is he the problem? No. So we've got to recognize the problem. It's here. Why? Why do we have these problems? James sums it up pretty well. James 4. We've been here before, but this isn't talking about... Uh, the war is out in the trenches somewhere of uh, countries fighting countries. James is writing to the scattered brethren of the church in the book of James. Whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members, the selfishness that we have? I don't know whether all of you have heard this toast or not. I have heard it once or twice over the years. Someone raises their glass and says, Here's to you and here's to me. But if by chance we disagree, then fully on you, hey, here's to me. Well, that pretty well sums up where we are in the church today. Sad, but it's true. We have to have our own way. Utter selfishness, James says. You ask and receive not because you ask the wrong way, for the wrong thing, for the wrong reason, amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lusts. So it's for our own pleasures, our own way, our own peace of mind, our own happiness. We're selfish. You adulterers and adulteresses. Was he speaking about their physical lives? No, he's talking here spiritually. There was some, I'm sure, some of the physical as well. But he's talking about spiritual adultery with the world. Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? There's a big problem of why we're having difficulties, is we have not come out of Babylon, Revelation 18.4. We still have our foot dallying there, seeking our own pleasures and not turning our hearts totally, utterly, fully to God. I don't know what that means yet, brethren. I feel like I really want to serve God. I really do. But I don't know the depths of the deception and the blackness of my heart yet. I must still have my feet too much in the world and not enough concentrated on God. And so must you, otherwise this thing would have turned around. You'll know by the fruits, isn't it obvious? Maybe we've not yet begun to fight. What does he mean by the friendship of the world? Do we still look to the world's entertainment too much? Do we still look to the selfish fulfillment of our emotions too much? 
I'm not going to stand here and say everything that's in the world you should never look at. Get your 12-gauge out and blow a hole in your television. I'm not going to go that far. I'm just going to raise some questions here about where are we? What is it going to take? How much do we have a friendship with the world? These scriptures are written for us too. They're not just written to the scattered brethren that James sent this letter to. Otherwise, why even record it? If it just went to them, there's duality all through the Bible. If there's not, why did God write the Old Testament? Throw it away if it isn't for us at the end time. Why preserve it through the Middle Ages? And if the experiences of the early New Testament church were not for us, why record all this? It was just for them. Send the letter to them and forget it. But God carefully preserved these stories for us because he knows human nature does not change without his spirit and without a rigorous plan to do something about it. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You can think on that one, meditate on that one, think about that one. Are we still friends with the world? To what degree and in what way? Do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? See, he applies scripture that was written long, long ago to those people. And that's all we're doing is applying it to us. But he gives more grace or pardon. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud. Didn't we read that in Proverbs 15, 25? But gives grace to the humble. We begin to see an answer here. He gives grace to the humble. When we get rid of our spiritual pride and admit that we are absolutely nothing before God and get our feet out of the world and out of our own agenda and begin to truly try to serve our brother. I use one little example, which is personal, it's no big deal, but we have a neighbor and uh, there's no defined line between her place and ours because we're leasing the land and, and have our trailer on it and she's leasing the land. And uh, I don't know where to stop mowing. She doesn't know where to stop mowing. We haven't had a fight over it yet. The way I got introduced myself to her was I saw that her lawnmower was broken down and her grass was getting longer and longer. So when I mowed my lawn, uh, it's been a year ago now, uh, it grows fast in Charlotte. Uh, I just kept on mowing. And when I got to her front porch, she came out amazed. Says, no one's ever done anything like that to me in my whole life. She's in her 50s. You know, I just thought it was kind of a neighborly thing to do, and it was a good chance to to get to know her a little bit and maybe bomb a glass of iced tea. I was hot, you know, or whatever. But boy, did it help get us off on the right foot. And now I, do, I still don't know where the line is, but I can sort of make an imaginary line, and I try to mow a few, just a few more over on her side to be sure that she doesn't come out there and begin to mumble under her breath while he didn't mow all of his. Because I don't know where in her mind the line is. See? It might be different than mine. What did Christ tell us to do? He told us to polish our own apple. He calls us the apple of his eye. And we have to polish that part of the apple that we uh, have to do with. But he said, get the mote out of your own eye 
then you might see clearly to get, I mean, the beam out of your own eye, excuse me, you might see clearly to get the moat out of your neighbor's eye. Now, that is a positive instruction. You don't stop with getting the beam out of your eye. It, there's, a, there's a commission there as well. It says, go ahead and get the beam out first, yes, but then help your brother with his. That is a positive instruction to do. So God says, clean up your backyard and then help the neighbor with theirs. That we have to do. Now, in Acts 2, they were all in one place with one accord. And that was a wonderful beginning of the church. And 3,000 were converted that day, and God added more people to the church day after day. And that's pretty well the end of that story. Because the rest of the New Testament is a tale of woe and correction and urging people to become unified in the unity of the faith and so on and so forth. It's devoted to problems. It began shortly thereafter. Ananias and Sapphira held some money back. They were selfish and consuming it upon their own lots, as James 4 says. And it was downhill. Human nature began to arise after God really poured out his spirit and showed what can be done. Human beings allowed human nature to take over, or at least to make great inroads. And Paul had to straighten them out very severely over the sex sins in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's go quickly to 1 Corinthians 11, because I want to use this one, and we'll start trying to wrap this up here pretty quickly. I'm about to run out of time. 1 Corinthians 11. Now this is a, I guess what we would consider fairly unimportant issue, beginning in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Be you followers of me, even as I also I am of Christ. Now, that's not a small issue. Uh, the opening line is not. And he praises them. But he gets into this thing about women's hair length. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that is a very, very important spiritual principle. But it is given form by the length of a woman's hair. Her subjection to her husband and to Christ is shown by the length of her hair. A very physical thing, one that we might consider fairly unimportant, and yet Paul addresses it here. Now, this is probably not the only issue that Paul ever had a problem with in the church. I mean, we can find plenty in the New Testament to show that in Paul's letters. But why something so seemingly unimportant is how long a woman's hair is. It might be dismissed easily. But God saw fit to include this particular little picky problem that someone would call a picky in the Bible and preserve it for us today. And then Paul goes on to explain, I won't go through the whole thing, that this relationship between husband and wife and between Christ and church is a very, very important spiritual thing. And he even goes on down to say that if a woman have long hair, verse 15, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given a covering. It's a glory if she have long hair. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. But even nature teaches that a woman should have long hair and a man short hair because of the physical things that he tends to get into. And his hair would get in his way. You need a case in point? Look at Absalom hanging from the oak tree. He would have been better off with short hair <laughs> that day. 
but he even says in verse 10, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Apparently there is some indication that if you do not have that sign of submission, that perhaps the angels don't even give you the protection that you might otherwise have. Now this could be fairly important. And I'll tell you though, anytime I've heard a minister stand before the church of God and start talking about women's hair length, I see jaws shut and necks turn red. <laughs> and we're not talking about style, because you can put it up, it's still long, but we're talking about length of hair. But boy, does it bring out a carnal attitude, a proud attitude. You will not tell me how I'm going to wear or how long my hair is going to be. And we can really get stubborn on that one. It, 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 it's personal. You're meddling. No. It's Bible. It's God. Now, you're not going to pull me in an argument about how long is long and how short is short. But it would appear to me that you better be sure. Okay? Be sure that that is long enough that God would say, now, that woman is, is in submission. We're talking about attitude here, aren't we? Since I even turned to 1 Corinthians 11 and introduced this subject, there are people within the hearing of my voice somewhere who are getting really upset by now. And they're probably not even hearing the conclusion of what I'm saying about this. Because the minute the subject came up, the mind shut off and the emotions came up. That's just the way we are. And I don't mean to be picking on anyone in particular here. Or anyone in particular here. I mean, there are other scriptures we can go to about other things that will step on different toes. So I'm not trying to pick on anyone in particular, but we just let the chips fall where they may. On any subject in the Bible. I did mention 1 Corinthians 5. I didn't get into that one in particular, so someone can get upset about that one if you want to, if you're living with your stepmother-in-law. But the point is the same point James was making in James 4. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the first thing, brethren, that we are going to have to do to begin to turn this around to get God to turn back to us is do what he told us in Joel rend our hearts humble ourselves before God he says to this man will I look humble and contrite and here in James 4 I'll turn back here draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded and for those of who just cannot believe that Joel was writing to us let's go to the New Testament and James says essentially the same thing here that Joel said. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Isn't that what Joel said? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to, heaven, uh, to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another. Then he goes on with some instructions which we probably will get into in a different sermon. But now to close this, I want to leave Romans 12.1 with you. John read that last week, and it is 
critical to this whole issue. Romans 12, and in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, yourselves, your hearts, your minds, your beings, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Be transformed, not conformed. In other words, God says, expect to change. Because by nature, if we both should disagree, then poo on you, here's to me. See? That's our natural reaction. Isn't the whole New Testament written to get people to change? Did Paul write these letters just to pat everybody on the back and say, I hear everything is just fine in Corinth this year. I have nothing hard to say to you. No, the whole book, the whole Bible is written to get people to change. That is God's message to the whole church. Change the way you are and become holy, acceptable to me. So that is the way I want to close this. Prepare to change. Don't prepare to rebel when somebody picks up 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians 5 or James 2 or Hebrews 6 or Luke 13 or wherever you want to name. Prepare to rend your heart and not your garments. Prepare to change because that's what God is.